Welcome to Middle East Forum's webinar and podcast series. I am Cliff Smith, the director of the Washington Project at the Middle East Forum. Today, our guest is my friend, Sean Derns, who is here to talk about Lebanon, Hezbollah, and the media. First, let me give a little bit of background of Sean. Um, Sean is a senior research analyst for the Committee for Accuracy in Middle East Reporting and Analysis, otherwise known as CAMERA. In that role, he has extensively critiqued the bias, incompetent, lazy, or just flat out wrong coverage of events in the Middle East, which, to be quite frank, is well all too common, particularly in mainstream Western media. Um, additionally, uh, Sean is a hardcore history buff, um, especially of modern, modern Middle Eastern history, and I'm always fascinated by his writings, which are extensive, um, and use his knowledge of the history of the Middle East, as well as current events, um, and present a very interesting picture of what we need to do and what ought to be done for the past, present, future of the Middle East. Welcome, Sean. Thank you, Cliff. Um, on the topic, it is almost a cliche at this point to say that Beirut, Lebanon was once the Paris of the Middle East. Uh, to quote you in a recent column, during the 1960s, the country was synonymous with five-star hotels, was home to legendary cafes and nightclubs, and was frequented by Hollywood celebrities and models. But in the past half century or so, things have changed drastically and for the worse. Lebanon, whose population includes large percentage of both Shia and Sunni Muslims, as well as Christians, and with many subdivisions of Christians and Muslims, and a significant minority of Druze. And the exact percentage is disputed, um, and the popular census has not been taken since before the creation of the modern country. Um, do the political sensitivity around this question in Lebanon. Um, nonetheless, it is clear the sectarian divide drives a lot of politics in Lebanon. Um, this has been exploited by outside actors for decades, none so successfully as by Hezbollah or the Party of God. Um, Hezbollah is a, a theocratic Shia movement, rife with anti-Semitism and hatred for rivals that get in their way. And it's both a political party um, and a militia. Um, it is so powerful that it commonly is thought to hold more power than that of the official Lebanese army. As such, the politics of Lebanon are extremely complicated and often bedevil outsiders, even people with a lot of knowledge of the, re of the region. Um, Hezbollah uses this reality to befuddle and manipulate a complicate um, and complicit media um, concerning their bad acts, such as the use of human shields, their collusion with the official state of Lebanon, and other acts of aggression against both their internal and external rivals. This, in turn, has helped turn the Paris of the Middle East into what many refer to as a failed state. So, Sean, to start this off, can you discuss some of the different democratic and political factions in Lebanon and how Hezbollah uses this to its advantage? Uh, certainly. So, of course, as you mentioned, there was the National Pact, uh, and this was kind of the foundation of the Lebanese state based off the three main groups, and I say that quite loosely. Uh, the Christians, uh, the Shia, and the Sunni, and then, of course, you had uh, multiple uh, sects or confessions of uh, Christians, as well as the Druze. Uh, Hezbollah is a Shia movement. Uh, they're a Shia Islamist movement, and, of course, uh, this has been part of their rise. For years, it was uh, said, and I think correctly so, that the Shia were largely neglected and overlooked within uh, Lebanon's political system, and Hezbollah used this to their advantage as did uh, other Shia militias at the early foundational stages, this being the late 70s, early 1980s. So uh, being Shia is, of course, crucial to Hezbollah's rise. However, this hasn't stopped uh, certain Christian sects from supporting Hezbollah at certain times, and uh, as well as the Druze at certain times. So it, it is uh, quite complicated, as you know. 
Um, in the fight over control of Lebanon, you have said before that Hezbollah uses um, what you refer to as its press weapon. What do you mean by press weapon? And can you explain a little bit how this press weapon works? Yeah, uh, this is a great question, Cliff. And of course, that's uh, the, the main thrust <clears throat> of this webinar. Hezbollah has used the press since its inception to achieve its goals. And some of those goals are, of course, recruitment. Um, Hezbollah wants to show that it's strong, it's popular, and this is an essential part of its image, and image is power, uh, certainly, in Lebanon. So that, that, that's a huge part of it as well. However, um, Hezbollah also uses it as psych for psychological warfare, so they want to exert or exaggerate, rather, their influence and strength uh, to intimidate their opponents, and that includes not only Israel and the United States, but also their opponents within Lebanon itself. And, what, and how exactly does it utilize this? I mean, what are the tools it uses to make the press do what it wants or say what it wants? What, what, why is there an ideology that gets the press to go along? Is it naivety? Um, things like this. How, how does it work functionally? Great question. So the, the chief weapon is intimidation. And that is, that's always been the case since, since Hezbollah's inception. In the 1980s, there was a string of journalists that were um, tortured, kidnapped, and in some cases murdered, as well as non-journalists, so most famously perhaps uh, William Buckley, the CIA station chief, who replaced Bob Ames. Uh, so that, that's part of the, uh, their tactics is intimidating journalists. You don't necessarily need to, um, if you have this long history of holding journalists hostage, torturing them. One famous journalist, Terry Anderson of the Associated Press, was held for more than six years by Hezbollah, from 85 to 91. So that is an established history. Journalists are well aware of it. Um, now, I and I can get into this later, but how they use that does differ in today's era uh, based off of whether you're a foreign reporter or whether you're a local reporter. Hezbollah is going to be much more likely to intimidate you if you are a local reporter. Um, this isn't always the case. In fact, over the weekend, uh, we had an uh, Iranian dissident living in Brooklyn who uh, Someone, perhaps we do not know at this point, connected to Hezbollah, uh, tried to get into her house, was armed with an AK-47. And so th that is still a developing story. But if you look at how Hezbollah treats, in particular, I would say Shia journalists, like Lachman Slim, who was assassinated, uh, I believe, 18 months ago or so, uh, he was Shia and he was a critic of Hezbollah. So if you are Lebanese, and especially if you're going to... Uh, infringe upon that area of Hezbollah's control, which is to say that of uh, Shia, um, they are probably going to hit back hard and treat you perhaps differently than they would say an American or a British journalist who might be living there, might be treated more with kid gloves. So uh, that actually leads me to my next question that I was going to ask. Um, I am an amateur by the standards of people like you on understanding um, Lebanese politics, which is extremely complicated, as you know, and I, and I mentioned, um, this intimidation you refer to, among other things, um, as you pointed out, this is directed both at domestic press and foreign press. Um, and it is quite clear to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that much of what goes on in Lebanon politically is trying to control how outside actors interact with Lebanon, be it Syria, Saudi Arabia, Israel, the US, France, so on and so forth. How much of it is trying to control what happens internally versus what happens externally and how do those interrelate or, or even perhaps um, 
you know, if it's and the answer is almost certainly both to some degree, but you know, which is it more effective at perhaps? Great question. I think um, the priority and as well as effectiveness is chiefly, especially in today's uh, day and age with, uh, with internal politics and internal image. Um, as I mentioned at the, at the Hezbollah's inception, there was, um, first off, there was a lot of confusion about what exactly is Hezbollah and how does it differ from say Amal or some of these other militias, this being the early 1980s. And then as uh, that became increasingly clear and as Hezbollah's myth of being a Lebanese national resistance movement uh, was really shot down, uh, particularly after Israel withdrew in 2000 and Hezbollah remained there showing that they are not national movement uh, and they never have been, then that kind of line uh, with the foreign press lost its strength. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, this has been the trend going forward for the last two decades is that if you look at foreign reporting on Hezbollah, it's become still far from perfect, very problematic, but it's become better. Uh, and conversely, Hezbollah, as it's gained greater control within Lebanon, has shown an even greater willingness to assassinate, murder, and intimidate opponents within Lebanon. So, wow, that's a big... Uh, um, trying to think through the implications of that. that that's, I mean, this shift in how effective it has been, um, would you say it affects their behavior internally and by internally, I guess, I mean, in the region or even worldwide, really, a lot or a little, or is, it, is that sort of in flux depending on how things are going at the moment? I think it's in flux, um, but I do think that the trend uh, for the last 20 years, of course, is Hezbollah consolidating its control over Lebanon. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some analysts, notably uh, Tony Badron with FTD, who says that Hez- Lebanon is Hezbollah, Hezbollah is Lebanon. Uh, and there's others that say that that's not the case, but I think that there is no disputing that Hezbollah today is better armed, better equipped than it was 20 years ago. And if you can have an incident like, say, the Beirut port explosion in 2020, I believe it was in August, where you had an explosion, murdered 218 people, left something like 300,000 homeless. Uh, I mean, a devastating, one of the largest non-nuclear blasts ever uh, took place because ammonium nitrate, likely stored by Hezbollah, uh, exploded, uh, devastating blocks and blocks within a major urban center. And there's been no real investigation. And in fact, one of the judges that was investigating was forced to resign. So Hezbollah has shown itself that if, I mean, one of the staples of being a, uh, a country, of course, is having control over your borders. And Hezbollah has control over Lebanon's borders and is able to obstruct an investigation into the largest non-nuclear blast in one of the largest non-nuclear blasts in history. Yeah, That's astounding. That was actually, then you're actually beating me to my next question. Um, as far as the blast goes, um, this goes to that. Um, the consensus, I think, you know, in the weeks and months after that blast was that, oh, this was finally going to shake um, the foundations of Lesbola's support. This is going to change Lebanese politics forever. I remember listening to several regional experts um, in another or, um, podcast about this in the month or so afterwards. And uh, everything I have seen since has simply not been the case. Um, it, they may have taken some mild setbacks in parliament, but that hasn't really functionally changed their power at all. Um, do you want to comment on that? And sort of, you can also, to the you'd be interesting, discuss how the press has been part of that. That's that's a fantastic point. And I think, uh, you know, it's funny. Well, it's not funny. It's actually very tragic. But over the weekend, I was revisiting Michael Totten's book, uh, The Road to Fatima Gate. I know uh, Mr. Totten's done some work for MEF in the past. He's a superb journalist. 
And that book is one of the best accounts, I think, of seeing how Hezbollah works to try and distort press coverage. Totten talks about it at length. And uh, one of the things that that book mentions, and this is a book from over 15 years ago, is the sort of optimism that happened uh, with the Cedar Revolution in 05 or 06 after Rafiq Hariri, the Lebanese prime minister, was assassinated. And there was uh, just a tremendous period of optimism that maybe this would be the moment that would break Hezbollah's control. And fast forward a decade and a half, that's clearly not been the case. So there is this perennial optimism that maybe this is going to be the moment of freedom for the Lebanese people. And people, you saw that in May where uh, Hezbollah experienced some, some losses uh, in parliament and anti-Hezbollah coalitions uh, gained uh, some support. However, you know, Hezbollah wasn't even in the government until 2005. So the, the trend is, is in the opposite direction. And at the end of the day, while that's certainly promising, and I think there's other promising data that we can get into in terms of Hezbollah losing some support, this is still the Middle East. And um, as with many other places, who holds the gun holds the power. And that is unequivocally Hezbollah. I see. Um, on, uh, on this um, topic, um, we have seen similar um, intimidation of press in other places. I mean, recently, for example, it was revealed that the Associated Press had an office in Gaza that was also, um, they co-habilitated co with Hezbollah in that same building. Um, so obviously some of this is press complicitness in what's going on. How much of it do you think is uh, being complicit versus um, how is this different, I suppose, what I'm asking, than what's happened in Gaza or other parts of the Middle East where press coverage is, uh, say, shall we say, less than perfect? I, I think it's actually very similar in some respects to the example that you noted with Hamas in, in Gaza. Um, and I have a theory on that, um, which is to say that if you take a look at press coverage of, say, Al-Qaeda or ISIS or Boko Haram or what have you, Islamist groups whose principal target is not necessarily Israel – Many press outlets, uh, Western press outlets, have no problem referring to those organizations as terrorist groups. That uh, is less frequent with Hamas and Hezbollah, and I've written about this before in U.S. and elsewhere, where they tend to refer to these groups as militant organizations. Uh, so there is some complicity. And also, to your point, uh, to take it back to the Beirut bombing blast, there are numerous areas in Beirut itself, and certainly in southern Lebanon, more than 200 villages, where Hezbollah is firmly ensconced with weapons and munitions depots, and you don't really see any reporting on that. Then you haven't really seen any follow-up reporting in Beirut itself by foreign journalists based in Beirut mm -hmm. about, geez, where are, are there any other areas that are holding explosives? And could this potentially cause another explosion or mm -hmm. what have you? There, there really hasn't been uh, any reporting on that. And I think that that is complicit because these are obvious questions. Uh, but of course, they're not being uh, asked. And I think part of that has to do with... Uh, as well as intimidation. And the problem there is journalists don't talk about that usually. Yeah. Uh, individuals like Michael Totten are, are an exception to the rule. Um, just to our guests, um, I should have said this earlier, we will talk for another few minutes and then we'll have questions. We already have a number of questions in the Q&A section, um, but in a few more minutes, we will go to those and uh, we'll answer as many as we can before our time is up. But yeah, this is a this is a very bedeviling problem. Um, and um, as you have pointed out, you know, there have been many um, 
rises and falls in terms of how people view Hezbollah's future. And Hezbollah so far has always wound up on top. Um, with the understanding that at the end of the day, Iran um, controls Hezbollah, at least insofar as controls their ability to project power and such. Um, what can be done, if anything, to weaken them in Lebanon? And does more fair or less bias or you know, giving into their intimidation less impress? Is that a big part of it? Yes, it is. Um, so one thing that I think can be done is not make the problem worse. And uh, an example of that would be our support for uh, unquestioning support across bipartisan support uh, across multiple administrations for the Lebanese armed forces. Uh, the LAF has colluded with Hezbollah. It's a documented fact. It's not really up for dispute. Uh, the Lebanon's commander in chief, which right now is Michelle Aoun, uh, Christian president, has made pro Hezbollah statements and in fact owes uh, his position in part to uh, Hezbollah's support. So I think that the US really needs to examine aid to the LAF. It certainly uh, presents us with leverage. And at the very least, uh, we probably shouldn't be giving money to the LAF, which has collaborated with Hezbollah, for example, on the southern border uh, with projects that are meant to ensconce human shields or hide weapons depots. This is antithetical to the purpose of our aid to the LAF. Mm -hmm. Uh, what do you say to the argument that, well, if we cut support for the LAF, then we will have no influence in Lebanon and other you know, forces will just rush in? What is your response to that? My response is, uh, if we have influence, I'd like to see it. Yeah, there's, there's been, you know, we've, we've been giving the LAF money for years now and training, and it's paid off in the sense that, okay, well, there's been examples of LAF working with Hezbollah to fight Sunni jihadists, but uh, nonetheless, they're still propping up Shia jihadists. Who themselves have ties to many Sunni jihadists, mm -hmm. so there's no real evidence of that influence. I think that's something that uh, you know diplomats like to say, people that like to stay the course like to say, "Don't rock the boat," uh, but the boat has holes in it and it's sinking, and this is readily apparent. On that topic, um, as everybody that pays attention to the region knows, Israel and the Gulf Arabs um, increasingly have similar interests vis-a-vis -vis Iran, and they may not quite um, you know, view, have all the same answers and, or the same threats in a lot of ways, but I think it's probably safe to say they're not favorable towards Hezbollah. Yet, um, like Saudi Arabia kind of goes back and forth in providing um, aid to Lebanon. How, is, how does the Sunni Arabs view this? And also, is the Sunni Arab press any better than any place else when covering uh, Lebanon? Great question. Um... In some cases, I would say that they're better. Uh, in other cases, I'd say that they're worse. Um, as far as Arab influence in Lebanon, it, it differs dramatically. As you noted, the Saudis um, have long had a very vested interest in Lebanon um, with Hariri, both father and son. Um, so that is, that is another complicating factor, absolutely. I do tend to think that in some respects, Arab media, I'm using that as a very broad term, of course. Uh, tends to get the, the details right um, more than many Western journalists. Um, and of course, this is also part of the problem with a long-standing trend in journalism, which is the removal of foreign bureaus. Mm -hmm. uh, and a huge decline in foreign bureaus over the last several decades. And as a result, uh, reporters are more dependent on local fixers, stringers, or the wire services, or in some cases, um, Arab media. Mm -hmm. 
All right, we'll go to questions from our audience now. Um, we have a number already, but again, if you have any more, please type them into the box. We'll get as many to as many as we can. Um, this one is from Murray Feldman. Why does the UN at least seem to support Hezbollah? Great question. Um, the UN, I think, supports Hezbollah because the UN is anti-Israel. Uh, I mean, that's, that's a very simplistic response on, on my part, but I think that's really the root of it. Um, the UN um, supports resistance to and attempts to abolish the Jewish state. They wouldn't, <laughs> they wouldn't ever uh, uh, say that, certainly. But there's been a long-running trend, and you see it with the peacekeepers there in the region. At the very least, they're not really inclined to do anything to prevent or to enforce UN Security Council resolutions, which themselves, for more than three decades, say that Hezbollah should be disarmed and abolished. That's clearly not what's happened. Sure. Um, this is from Jerry Stein. Um, Given Hezbollah's a contempt for Israel, how do you explain their um, concurrence with the Lebanese government to decision to import the natural gas um, from Israel vis-a-vis -vis Egypt's LNG pipeline? Fantastic question. And I know uh, MEF fellow Jonathan Spire wrote a great piece on this, I believe in the Jerusalem Post last week, uh, kind of revealing the story. Uh, yes, I think that Lebanon is in absolutely dire straits. Of course, this is, you know, that's an evergreen line. You could be saying that, as you noted, for the last half century. Uh, but right now, Lebanon's economic circumstances are absolutely dire. And, you know, you're going to take help where you can get it. And Perhaps this gives the Israelis, some might feel some leverage. I think that's certainly up for debate. But, um, you know, they're more than willing to take help from an entity that they want to see abolished. I think that those are not, you know, synonyms. Mm -hmm. Let me jump in there and ask a question then. Given the fact, I mean, it may be true that they've been in dire straits before, but if they're in so dire straits where they are much more willing to do things like that, that they haven't done in the past, does that create any openings for the West, for Israel, for the Gulf Arabs to actually effectuate any change in Lebanon and to pull, to lessen or weaken Hezbollah's influence? Terrific question. Um, an optimist would say yes. Uh, I would say no. <laughs> I think that- uh, That's a little bit about you one way or another, Sean. <laughs> Uh, you know, who holds the gun holds the power. Hezbollah has remained absolutely committed to its, to its objectives, and it has a stranglehold uh, on the Lebanese state. Um, and that's why Lebanon is in the state that it's in. Uh, there's, there's a clear trajectory of Lebanon's downfall over the last half century to their willingness to support uh, anti-Semitic uh, terrorist groups, be it uh, Fatah or be it Hezbollah. Kerry mm -hmm. um, Hillenbrand asked, does UNIFIL play any constructive role? Would it be in Israel's interest to have them withdrawn? Um, and maybe you can explain a little bit about what UNIFIL is while you're at it. So UNIFIL has been tasked with enforcing some of the resolutions that date back to 1990 and the end of the, uh, the Lebanese Civil War. And they are there, among other things, to, uh, I guess I would sum it up by saying, to keep the peace. Uh, that has not been the case. Uh, certainly was not the case in 06, so that I think that was a more... Uh, an unintentional war, uh, uh, sleepwalking war, if you will. But uh, I do not think that they really play a constructive role. Now, you could certainly argue that by having them there, this prevents Hezbollah from uh, launching attacks. I don't really think that's been the case. I think, if anything, they provide cover and the sort of fiction that there is peace there instead of you know a long-brewing uh, war. So in my judgment, no. Yeah. 
Um, Eric in our audience asks, um, is there any way for the US to support the Lebanese people without helping Hezbollah? It's always a difficult question in any circumstances where you have bad guys, but especially in Lebanon, it seems. What do you say? That is, uh, that's a great question. And I'm sure that there are charities and means to get support to the Lebanese people. I would note that it's very hard to get aid into Lebanon without it some way benefiting Hezbollah, um, either through uh, creating the fiction or boosting the fiction that it is a functioning state or that Hezbollah does not exert control or what have you. But yeah, your heart really does go out to the Lebanese. Uh, and there is certainly amongst uh, the Druze and especially in the Shia as Lachman Slim's uh, assassination, there's growing criticism of Hezbollah. Uh, Lebanese, many Lebanese do not want to be cannon fodder for Hezbollah's next uh, war against the Jewish state. Uh, they received a huge backlash after 06, and I think there is growing discontent, including uh, in the South and elsewhere. And it, and it is uh, across various sects and confessions. Mm -hmm. um, another question, um, is there any, um, let me rephrase this slightly. Um, how much blame do the Lebanese people have for um, the situation they find themselves in versus Hezbollah? And if perhaps there is a section of society that has more blame than others, you know, who would that be? Oh boy. <laughs> I know that's a pickle. Yeah, that is quite the question. Um, I'd be reluctant to place blame across any one sect or any one confession. I think that Lebanon and the Lebanese people, uh, much like the Palestinian people in this sense, there are many differences, have had decades of atrocious leadership, uh, whether it's through uh, kleptocratic authoritarian uh, running of institutions or failing to run institutions, or their willingness to support uh, terrorist groups, armed resistance uh, to destroy uh, Israel. Of course, unequivocally, Hezbollah is a Shia uh, Islamist movement, but this does not mean that many or even most Shia support Hezbollah, certainly now not necessarily the case, uh, but it, it changes. Uh, in the 1980s, there was broad support uh, for by many Shia, uh, depending on where, of course, for Hezbollah. So I, I would real, I'd, I'd have to pass the buck on uh, uh, putting any one sector, any group uh, for blame, but there's also no denying that this rise of support for anti-Semitic terrorist groups coincides with the destruction of Lebanon. Um, let me get phrased. Uh, Stuart Slomi asked a question. I'll, I'll rephrase it slightly, but you'll, um, to my understanding. Um, if it is true, as is often discussed, that Iran is arm has armed Hezbollah, at least in part, as a deterrence to Israel attacking its nuclear facilities, um, what do you think that means in terms of how will he how will Hezbollah behave if Israel strikes um, Iran's nuclear facilities? Does it function as a deterrent? Speak to those that area. That is a great question. I wrote a piece in the National Interest, I think, roughly six weeks ago, uh, kind of delving into this topic. I think that 
Iran wants it as a deterrence, and it has been a deterrence in the sense that Israel's had the capability to go full bore and destroy huge chunks of Beirut, southern Lebanon, and they have not done so. They've you know resorted to mowing the grass, uh, similar fashion as they've done uh, against Hamas and Gaza. That will not be the case if Israel does strike Iran's uh, nuclear weapons program, which, as I've written, I think that they will. And if that happens, uh, Hezbollah will be deployed. Uh, they will attack, as will other Iranian proxies, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, etc. Um, the real issue, of course, with Hezbollah, Hamas uses human shields unequivocally. Hezbollah has entire villages in the south that are human shields. And so the war and the chief of uh, the IDF's general staff has made remarks on this. That war will be cataclysmic with a uh, loss of civilian life that I don't think we've seen in the multiple wars between the wars or in the multiple conflicts, say 06 with Hezbollah or 2014, 2021 with Hamas, what have you. This would be a war of an entirely different sort. And part of the reason for that is because Hezbollah has these massive human shields, uh, entire villages in the south, huge areas of Beirut. And this is a subject that journalists really aren't writing about. And they need to be, because this is a loss of life that I think is impending and it's gonna be uh, drastic. Let me ask one final question before we have to, running out of time here. But um, on this topic that you just mentioned, you pointed out in some of your articles more recently that this, um, press weapon that Hezbollah uses and using favorable coverage to shape events to its favor it is not unprecedented. It had been used in the past um, by the PLO, among others. Um, what does that teach us? And does it tell us anything about how to change this dynamic going forward, um, including but not exclusively concerning just trying to get better press coverage, you know, beyond that, I suppose? That is a fabulous question. Um, and this is, and it, I would even say it goes even beyond the PLO in the sense that you had the, the AP working with the Nazis to, in order to get access to the Nazi regime, they would, you know, cut back some of their reporting, report, uh, not report certain things that would be damaging to the Nazi regime. It is a really difficult thing to do because if you, I mean, the rate, the number of journalists that have been murdered in the last Middle East or in the Middle East in the last decade, uh, a large part of this is due to ISIS, is, uh, is a huge increase. It used to be safe, relatively safe uh, to report uh, from the Middle East. And that's the trend has been in the opposite direction, tragically. But is what you get when you look at a newspaper or say you watch um, a reporter on TV, you get a bit of fiction, which is the idea that they're able to sit there and just interview individuals and be there on the ground uh, without a change to their coverage. And that is often not the case. The, whether it's intimidation or uh, access, there are compromises that are inherent to reporting uh, from authoritarian, regime, uh, authoritarian regimes or uh, terrorist groups. So I think that being uh, discussing that and highlighting those compromises is probably the best that we're going to get. Yeah, It's always going to be dangerous to report from these sorts of places, but willingly talking about it and not presenting the fiction of, okay, well, I'm just here honestly able to interview Hassan Nasrallah, no issues. That's just not how that works. Of course, and it's the tragic um, issue that uh, predate that goes well outside the Middle East, of course, but uh, perhaps affects the Middle East more directly. 
anyhow, thank you very much for your time here, Sean, and uh, really appreciate it. And thanks for all our guests. Please come back later this week for more of the Israeli Insider and other, um, other webinars coming on forward. Thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you later. Thanks. Sir.